This sermon, A Fountain of Unstoppable Praise, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, August 13th, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church. Open up your Bibles to Psalm 100 with me, please. Psalm 100. If you're visiting with us, we are grateful that you are here this morning. My name is Derek. I hope I get to meet you before before you leave, but we are grateful that you are spending this Sunday with us. I have a serious echo going on. So, Psalm 100. Would you stand with me with your Bibles opened? Let's read it together. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Lord, this is your word. We are your people. And we ask that your spirit now has his way in us. For those who do not know you, I pray that this word, that your spirit would use it to lead to their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my two oldest grandsons have been playing in a basketball league, and as a sports fan, maybe some might say a sports idolizer, um, it's a thrill for me to go to their games. Um, But I do get a little intense at their games, Um, and... Yesterday was no different than any other Saturday where I am at the games. And, you know, I'm the firm believer that it all begins with the coach. (laughs) And so one of the things that I tend to yell out, and that I yelled out more times than I care to remember yesterday, was, come on, coach, coach these guys up, help them out. Come on, coach. He just ignores me, of course. But I found myself, you know, these, they're, they're, they're 10, 11 years old. They're doing a great job, but they forget, right? They forget where they're supposed to line up. They, they forget that when they dribble down the court, they need to be looking up and down the court. Uh, they, they forget that just because they have the ball in their hands doesn't mean they're supposed to shoot, no matter where they are at on the court. They, they forget, and so I'm always yelling to the coach, come on, coach, coach these guys up. Help them out. Actually, uh, in the fourth quarter of yesterday's game, I I had a proud moment uh, when 
I noticed one of the moms run across the court and into the huddle during a timeout. And she proceeded, this is a tall gal, she proceeded to get down, and she was in that huddle. We were watching, and she's like, and the coach is just standing there. And, and you know, God bless him, this coach is not very active. I, my daughter keeps telling me, Dad, he volunteered. <laughs> Why don't you get out there? But this mom is in the huddle, and she's and as she's running back to the stands, I said, coach him up, mom, coach him up, yeah. <laughs> Later on, I asked the boys, I says, hey, what, what was that mom saying? She's like, guys, they keep ripping the ball out of your hands. Start ripping the ball out of their hands. And they did. They came back and won. <laughs> coach him up, mom, coach him up. Yeah, I was one of those parents, and now I'm one of those papas. But you know, just as those young kids forget and they need to be coached up, you know, that's, that's really not that different from the Christian life, is it? We need to be, in a sense, coached up. Genuinely living for Jesus in a fallen world with a sinful heart Maybe it's just me, but I think that can be pretty hard. I think that can be pretty difficult. It's easy to forget who we are in Christ. It's easy to forget why we exist. It's easy to forget what we are called to. It's easy to forget how we are able to live for Jesus. It's easy to forget where all this is going, where Clara is now in spirit. And so we need to, in a godly sense, be coached up in Christ. That's why the scriptures remind us over and over again, we, 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 we need to be encouraged in our faith. We, we need to be challenged at times in our faith. We, we need to be spurred on in our faith and our walk with God. And I believe in a unique way and in a profoundly gospel-centered way, that's what Psalm 100 does. In a sense, Psalm 100 coaches us up in Christ with this truth. If I had to put it in my own words... It would be this, when God's unfailing love rules our hearts, unstoppable praises will pour from our lives. When God's unfailing love rules my heart, the fruit and effect will be, not, in, not perfectly, but the fruit and effect will increasingly be praises that pour from my life. Really, when you think about it, that, that's what our lives are. That's what Scripture calls our lives. They're, our lives are, are living fountains, right? They're living fountains of something. The question is what? And as we will see here in Psalm 100, the, the more we know God, the, the more we pursue Christ, the more we rely on the Spirit, our lives will be. It's a promise. They will be a, a fountain 
of unstoppable praises, not to us, but to the glory of God. Now, you probably noticed as we read Psalms, it's short, but it is busy. It's like the Times Square of the Psalms. You have, you have in just five short verses, did you catch it? There are seven clear imperatives. Look at the text with me. By imperative, I mean command. The very first verse, it starts out with a command. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. And then verse two, serve the Lord. Verse, the uh, second part of verse 2, come into his presence, make, serve, come. They're all commands. And then verse 3, know another command. Verse 4, enter. Yes, that too is a command. The end of verse 4, give thanks. Yep, a command. Bless his name. Yes, that's a command. Five verses, seven commands. They are not suggestions. They are not optional for the Christian. They are not negotiable. They are not debatable. They are commands. From singing and serving to gathering and giving to thinking and thanking. God says, do these things. Let these things Pour forth from your life. And did you notice at the same time, these seven imperatives, they don't stand alone. They are really attitudes of the heart. What I mean by that is they are outward expressions of an inward heart disposition toward God. Look at verse 1 again. We don't just make a noise. We make a joyful noise. Anybody can make a noise. (laughs) We make a joyful noise. Actually, that, that, that word there, that, the, the verb there, it, it comes from the Hebrew word that, that means a glad shout. And the idea was when a king would enter into his subject's presence, there would be a glad shout as a way to honor the king who is now in their presence. In verse 2, we don't merely serve, but we serve with gladness, with joy. Verse 4, we don't merely gather together on Sundays. We enter his gates with what? Thanksgiving and praises. So so we see in in this psalm actions, seven actions and attitudes. And I really think as we begin here, Psalm 100 in one sense is really an an illustration of Romans 12.1. You know the passage, right? That all of life, all of life is worship from God. The heart. Romans 12, 1, it, it gives us that far-reaching exhortation that your entire life, your entire being is meant to be worship unto God. And of course, Romans 12, 1 roots us in our motivation, which is the mercies of God that Paul has just unpacked in Romans 1 through 11. Well, in the same way, Psalm 100 roots us in a known reality as well. And so what we're going to do is we're really not going to spend much time on these commands. I think we know these. We're going to spend our time on the indicative, if you will, the motivation. Why? Why should I come into his presence with singing? Why should I enter his courts with praise? So we are going to spend most of our time in verse 3 and verse Four. And so notice verse 3, because here is 
our motivation. Without verse 3, all these commands are just noise. Notice what he says. Another command. Know the Lord. He is God. The command here is to know something. The psalmist says, I want you to know something. It's this. Know the Lord. He is God. When I was younger, I I owned a 69 Fastback Mustang. Yes, you can applaud. (laughs) The greatest car to ever roll off the factory assembly line for Ford or any company. Mustang yellow. Oversized black racing stripe from the front to the back. High-performance vented hood for maximum airflow. And if you know anything about cars, that means power. A 351 Windsor with a Holly four-barrel. 411 posi traction in the rear end. I had the polished aluminum Hurst not finger formed <laughs> T-bar shifter for maximum control. Now if you don't know what that any of that means that's okay I don't either. <laughs> but I can tell you this. That car was king of the Saturday night county road quarter mile every time. It was like money in the bank. And I would roll up into the fairway parking lot, the little shopping center in the town I grew up in. I would roll up and, and, and all, the, all the guys with their cute little Camaros would be all lined up. And I would roll in. Just a throaty thump. And the car was bouncing, not because I had air shocks, because the engine mounts couldn't control the power that my motor was putting out. It was Mustang yellow. And I would roll in, and I would say, just my presence was, this is the one true muscle car. Well, That illustration breaks down, of course. (laughs) But the the, the psalmist says, know that the Lord is God. See, the pagan nations had their own gods. The surrounding nations of Israel, everybody had their own gods. It was just a given. And of course, your God was the greatest God. But the psalmist reminds us, no, No, Israel's God. You'll notice in your Bible, Lord is all caps. that, That is the holy name of God revealed to Moses on the mountain, Yahweh. It begins with know that the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, the one, who, the one who rescued and redeemed the Hebrew people from Egypt, the one who parted the Red Sea to save 
Egypt, the one who caused food to come down out of heaven, the one who made water come out of a rock, that one, he is, not a God, not the God, not a God amongst the gods, he is God. He is the one true God. And so the psalmist reminds us here. He reminds us. He says, no. Know something. And it's a reminder that our faith, it, it takes root in our hearts. But it enters through the mind, doesn't it? Our thanksgiving, our serving, our singing, our gathering, everything that we've been doing, it might feel a little uncomfortable for some of you. It, it might feel a bit unnatural, but it's intelligent. It's intelligent. We are doing what we're doing because of something that we know about our God, our faith. The Christian faith is not blind. The Christian faith is not subjective. It, it, it's not hollow. We live, and how we live, we live for God based on what we know and that we, really this song calls us to continually know, to continue to know, to keep knowing all the more because God is incomprehensible in his nature ultimately. We cannot exhaust our knowledge about God. And so we do what we do. These seven imperatives, they are rooted in what goes before them is the objective truth about God, who he is. And as we will see what he is like, our God, the God of the gospel, he is God. He is God. Scott McLeod this morning uh, in pre-service prayer, he reminded us to think on these things from Philippians 4. Think on these things. That's what the psalmist, in essence, is doing here. He gives three divine and eternal realities to stay our minds on that will motivate us and be the source of our fountain of praise and thanksgiving. And so the rest of our time, that's what we're going to look at. Three things, in, two of them in verse 3, one of them in verse 5. The first one is this. If you've been waiting for points, here you go. The first one is this. God created us. God created you. Notice verse 3. Know the Lord. Know that the Lord, he is God. And then look what it says. Here's the first thing he wants us to know. It is he who made us, and we are his. It is he who made us. The, the, the most foundational knowledge that one can possess is the creator-creature relationship. This is where everything it starts, because as John Calvin said, it is impossible to truly know ourselves apart from knowing God as creator and ourselves as his creatures. And we, we know what happens when we get away from this. The denial of this reality creates tremendous deception and chaos in our lives, in our world. The ridiculous notion of evolution does away with the need for God 
by trying to explain how we got to where we are without a divine creator. And it's nonsense. The narcissistic idea of the self-made man, right? That exalts personal talents and exalts personal accomplishments while at the same time idolizing self as the ultimate creator. The transgender delusion that is mocking the creator-creature relationship as individuals try to play God with their, to their physical, mental, and ultimately spiritual peril. Just, there's just three. We could keep going. But what all three of those have in common is they, they deny the Lord as God. They, they, they are creating a perspective and a worldview that is built on this. There is no God. There is no Lord. And so you get chaos. You get destruction. Or in a more subtle and relevant way, perhaps for us as believers, we allow our own lives to be ruled by culture instead of the word, by, by personal preferences, instead of the, the truth and our identity in the gospel, or by our circumstances that are fueled by our subjective feelings and emotions. Instead of the truth of God's word, and the moment that we move off of the truth of God's word, we are beginning to, if only functionally, say, there is no need for God. We're, we're starting in September next month. We are actually in October, I think it is. We're beginning a six-month series in the book of Judges. So get ready for that. But you know what the refrain is? There's a cadence in the book of Judges. And the very last verse, it is the most depressing book. The, the, the way that book ends is the most depressing, I think, in all of Scripture. But throughout the book, there's this cadence. The author keeps telling us something, and he ends with this. Do you know what it is? You do. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That, folks, that is the result, whether you're Christian or not, that is the result when we lose sight of the creator-creature relationship. That is the result when we lose sight of the Lord is God, he made me, and I'm his. That is the result. We become gods in our own eyes, which has enormous implications for how we live. Because suddenly, I have myself to thank. I serve myself. I am accountable to no one. Glory belongs to me. So what do I need with a God? And maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you're going, wow, well, there isn't a God. Show me. Well, keep listening. Let's talk afterward. I'd love to talk to you. 
But this is where our knowing begins. God created us. We are his. I love what James Montgomery Boyce says. He says, it is only when we know God as our creator that we know ourselves as his creatures and find ourselves appropriately thanking him. But you know, the psalmist tells us God is only our creator. He is our redeemer. God created us and God redeemed us. Notice verse three. He says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I admit that the language of creator, creature can be a bit sterile. It seems cold. It seems removed. But the language that follows is intimate. We are his people. And then the psalmist qualifies that. The sheep of his pasture. If you need to be reminded of what it means to be a sheep in God's pasture, spend this week in Psalm 23. It is, it is intimate. And that's, that's, the, that's where the psalmist goes here. And I just want us to think about that for a moment. Do you remember Psalm 8? The one who created all things. The one who hung the moon and the stars in place. It was the work of his fingertips. He, that one, the psalmist here says, is your God. You are his. He, he shed the blood of his son to make you a sheep in his pasture. He shed the blood of his son to redeem you to himself. You are no longer simply a creature created in his image, accountable to him on the day of judgment. You are, you are a sheep in his flock. You call him Abba, Father. You are his adopted son or daughter. Think about that for a moment, especially parents. Think about the love that you have for your child. Think about how no one can get in the way of your love for your child. Now think about the infinite love of God towards you in Christ Jesus. However great you think, however strong of a bond you think your love is for your child, it, it pales in comparison to the Father's love for you. And you know where he showed that. Not by giving you a 69 fastback Mustang, but by shedding the blood of his son on a cross. The way Isaiah 53 says... It was his will to crush him so that you could be part of his family, so that you could be his child. 
So in God's wisdom, the imagery that God chooses to describe this relationship with you is that of a, a sheep. A shepherd who, who tends to that sheep. Who sacrifices for that sheep. Who's always thinking about the greatest good of that sheep. Who's always feeding that sheep. What a gift that we have here in Psalm 100 that that imagery would come rushing back into our minds. And, and he didn't do that when you got your act together. He didn't do that. He didn't say, come on, Derek. Coach yourself up. No, he came to us. Romans 5 says that when we were yet still his enemy, he plucked us like a brand plucked from the fire to, to draw from the vision in Zechariah. Like a brand plucked from the fire. So, so he, he plucked you from the grips of Satan and sin and hell. And he, he gave you Jesus as a hope for life and death. And so you see what the psalmist with this imagery that becomes very intimate, it's not that just not just that we know God intellectually, but we know him intimately. We are his. We are his not only in the sense that he created us, we are his in the sense that he, he loves us. And of course, you guys know this is our reality for one reason. Jesus. Remember, that's always the right answer. No one here is a self-made Christian. By the way, let's be careful we don't tell our testimonies like we're self-made Christians. It was the grace of God. He created us in love, and he saved us in love, redeeming us in love, if you will, recreating us as new creatures with a good shepherd, Jesus Christ. I love what John Stott says. I... I I just love how he says this. this. John says, this should affect you. <laughs> Look what he says. What can our worship be but joyful? Away with the funeral faces and the doleful dirges. Joy, gladness, and singing are to be the accompaniments of worship. And I don't think that just means when we gather on Sunday morning. I hope at a minimum it means when we gather on Sunday morning. But when we're out there, nobody should be more joyful. And I'm not diminishing your circumstance, so please hear me. But even in your most difficult situation, the Bible teaches us there should be a marked presence of joy in the Lord. I'm not going to tell you what that necessarily has to look like for each individual. But it's what we sung about this morning. It's what the psalmist reminds us of here. David knew heartache. David knew heartache. And yet his 
heart was filled with joy. James, James Montgomery, uh, uh, well, actually, getting my head of myself, I, I, I do want to ask you guys a question. I, I'm aware that there could be some people here who, that's a struggle to hear. Well, Pastor, you don't know how hard it is to be grateful, to sit under the preaching of a psalm for giving thanks. If you only knew what was going on in my life. I know every Sunday, I know every Sunday as a pastor, as a preacher, people walk through those double doors, and you're right. I don't, I don't know what is happening in your life. I don't know the hardship that you bring in here. I don't know the burden that is dogging you. I don't know what disappointments you experienced this week. But I also know that I don't have to because God does. And he gives us truths like Psalm 100 to cover those and to lift our eyes up out of the muck that is life in a fallen world to see the God, the Lord, who is our God and our great shepherd. So are you, are you waiting for God to do something, to really be thankful to him? Are you waiting to be convinced that, that our gathering should be a noisy celebration from the heart? Are you waiting for a particular blessing to unleash your unrestrained praises to God, be it in this room on a Sunday morning or out there. James Montgomery Boyce says, if there is no other reason why we must be thankful to God, it's because he has both made us and redeemed us. No one should be more thankful to God than the sheep who are cared for by the good shepherd. Lord, have mercy on us that we might be able to be a fountain of thanksgiving no matter what your providence in our lives looks like. So God created us. The, the, the motivation for our this, this seven commands that clearly move us to a joy-filled, grateful life of praise and worship in every area of life. Well, God created us. We belong to him. And that's what he created us for. Two, he has redeemed us. And three, he keeps us. He keeps us. We praise and thank God with our lives because of what he has done. Yes, he made us. He redeemed us. But there is one more reason here in verse 5. God is faithful to keep us. His character reveals that he is faithful to keep us in his love and his goodness to the end. Notice what verse 5 says. For the Lord is good. For the Lord is good. You know, the the ancient gods of the pagans, they weren't good. <laughs> they were selfish and fickle. Not that they really existed, you get what I mean. But in the eyes of the people, they were, they were selfish. They were, 
They were fickle. They, they were capricious. They, they believed that the gods would get angry if they weren't appeased. And so worship was about appeasing the gods. Sacrifices were about appeasing the gods. But the one true God of the Bible is good. He is good. His will is good. His purposes are good. He works all things for your good as his son and, and daughter. He doesn't just act in goodness. He is good. It is a necessary aspect of his character. When he created man in his image, he said, it is very good. Because it was his work and his image. God is good. And his goodness is expressed most in his eternal love for his people. Notice what verse 5 goes on to say. For the Lord is good. Here's how his goodness is worked out. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That, that there is one constant in this life and it's change. Right? And we hate change. We're fearful of change. I heard somebody say one time that the change is, yelling, is like yelling, bringing change to a, to a group is like yelling shark on a packed beach. Everybody just scatters. They're freaked out. Change! And yet, it, it, is, it is a constant. Things are constantly changing. By the time I figure out the new technology, it's changed. By the time we, we finally figure out the terminology, it's changed. The world we live in is rapidly changing at warp speed and not for the good. <laughs> not God. God does not change. His character, His promises, His purposes are constant. Scholars call it the immutability of God. He does not change in his person, in his being, in his character, in his purposes, and in his promises. What he has said stands. He does not waver in his affections for his people. His goodness does not ebb and flow with your faithfulness. He is good. And because he's good, his love endures forever. I said, have you fallen into sin this week? God's love for you has not changed. 
And his mercy means he will not reject you when you humble yourself before him in repentance for that sin. Have you doubted God's sovereignty lately? God, do you really care? God's power over your life has not changed. Maybe your perspective has, but God has not changed. Are you fearful of a circumstance today? God's promise to you is that he will keep you to the end. That will never be broken. His steadfast love endures forever. God is always in control of your life. The righteousness of blood of Jesus is always sufficient for your salvation. The spirit that lives in you can always do more than you can ask or imagine. And these realities will never change because God never changes. And he has promised to be who he is and to complete what he has begun to the end. He will always be good to you. Oh, certainly, sometimes that goodness and that love will express itself in divine discipline. But it's good because it draws you to him. It conforms you to his son. And he will keep you all the way to heaven. See what the psalmist is doing here? The psalmist is giving us something divine. He is giving us something eternal. What motivates you to go to work every day? A paycheck, right? So you could pay the bills. That paycheck can be taken away from you. The bills can become too much for your paycheck to cover. But the psalmist gives us something divine and eternal. Why? To motivate us to live as fountains of passionate praise and abounding thanksgiving to him come what may in all these commands in all of these imperatives five verses really three verses seven commands we find the power not in the commands not in doing the commands we find the power outside of ourselves we find the power in God who is the Lord who has made us his sheep and whose love for us endures forever that's the power God in Christ themselves If, if we try and go the commands, if we try and live a life of, of praise and thanksgiving and joy, it, it'll fade unless it's rooted in who God is and what he has done for us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I said at the outset, it's easy for us to forget trying to live 
in the strength of the Spirit for the glory of God in a fallen world when our own sin is dogging us every, every, the whole way. It's difficult. And it gets even more difficult when we forget what the psalmist has laid out here for us. And, and I think the Lord wants to, to speak to those who are here as we close this sermon who might feel that acutely even as you sit and listen. And I, and I, I believe that the Lord just wants to remind you have you forgotten about who I am? Have you lost sight of what I have done for you? Have you forgotten my promises to you? If Christian obedience has become more dutiful than delightful, you have forgotten. If serving the church has become inconvenient, you have forgotten. If time in the word and prayer has become mechanical, you have forgotten. The Sunday gathering has become a, a tedious obligation. You have forgotten. If encouraging others and confessing sins to one another has become obsolete, you have forgotten. If worship on a Sunday is driven by personality and preference, you have forgotten. But I believe the Lord would say to you, but I am gracious and merciful and you are a sheep of my pasture and I will not abandon you. I will be good to you. I will pour out my mercy on you. And here is my good news for you right now. It's found in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 4, that says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then he says this. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. When he says that we may find mercy, the word there 
the word there is specific. He doesn't mean some general, or he doesn't, I'm sorry, when we see the word grace, it's not some general grace. It's grace that fits your need. It's the exact grace that you need in the moment. And when he says you will find mercy, he is reminding you of the gospel blessing. To not be merciful would be to turn you away from his throne. But the writer of Hebrews says he won't do that because you have Christ going before you as your high priest. And so he will be merciful. That is, he will. He will hear your repentance. He will hear your cries and he will not reject you. He will not abandon you. His steadfast love endures forever, including that moment where you bow your heart to him and say, Lord, I have forgotten I have forgotten. So let Psalm 100 remind me. And he will be merciful. And he will give you all the grace. And just the right grace that you need to get up and live your life as a fountain of praise and thanksgiving to him. Don't forget, this week's going to get busy. <laughs> Don't forget, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And when that reality rules your heart, unstoppable praise will pour from your life. Now taking the counsel from John Stock, let's stand and let's sing with joy and gratitude.